This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Shelby Yada from Karakapas.com explained how she started a $1,500 per day business even though she doesn't like taking risks. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that started a business as a digital nomad traveling from Medellin to Austin to Chiang Mai, Thailand. In this episode, you'll learn what kind of questions to ask to get the right feedback when testing a product, how to stand out when reaching out to influencers with your product, and why it's better to launch all your marketing at once rather than over several weeks. Today, I'm joined by Chris Cage from Greenbelly Meals from greenbelly.co. Greenbelly Meals sells ready-to-eat super meals that provide one-third of your daily nutrition for a healthier and more productive day. It was started in 2014 and based on Newton, Georgia. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me, man. Hey, excited to have you on. So, uh, yeah, tell us a little more about these meals. Like, uh, how did you, like, tell us a little more about your store and, like, what are these meal products that you're selling? We, I started them actually in my mom's kitchen uh, in 2014 after spending some time abroad uh, where I was cycle touring New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, in cycle touring New Zealand, I would spend about three months on a bicycle just going down the the length of New Zealand and I was kind of camping out on the side of the road every night and cycling up to 100 miles a day and then after New Zealand uh, I came back to the United States and uh, kind of a similar lifestyle I was I was hiking 20 miles every day and camping out every night on the Appalachian Trail um, which was about five months of that kind of lifestyle. And on both of those trips, I was burning a ton of calories and, uh, I was carrying all the weight on my back. So everything, all my supplies, everything had to be super lightweight. Uh, so I, you know, I, I might be a week, uh, you know, in between towns. So I would have to carry a week's worth of, you know, supplies and food on my back, um, and so, yeah, at that kind of at that kind of burn rate, uh, I was really needing a lot of food. So it was kind of like stuck in this in this position of of having to carry a lot of supplies, but having to try to keep everything as as minimal as possible in order to prevent carrying too much weight. So, uh, yeah, we were eating a lot of you know food out there that was really high calorie, but was pretty junky. Uh, there was a lot of problem with backpacking food, and I started to kind of think of this ultimate meal idea and. Uh, the ultimate meal idea would be something that would be nutritionally dense, uh, so it would have a lot of not only calories to pack in, but, you know, a good balance of protein, carbs, fats, fiber, sodium, a lot of your macronutrients. Uh, yeah, and it would be very lightweight, and it would also be uh, ready to eat very easy for backpackers. So in the middle of the day, if you're hiking or, or cycling all day, you don't have to uh, stop, pull out your stove, you know, do the dishes, all that kind of stuff. It's something that would be very quick. Um, yeah, and it would be all natural using all natural ingredients. So I, I had that kind of idea after doing those those two long stretches of, of intense uh, burn and um, camping out. And uh, yeah, I came back uh, and moved in with the parents and 
yeah, I had, you know, I said, you know, I don't really want to go back to corporate America. Uh, I want to start a business. So I, I started working on that kind of ultimate meal concept and, and then Greenbelly kind of, you know, formed from there. Cool. So yeah, you uh, mentioned before we uh, started recording that you, in 2014, you were testing the market out. You were working, you said, with the food scientists at the time and did a series of soft launches to, I guess, just to test the market to see if there was demand out there for a product like this. Tell us a little bit about this. Like, how did you, well, first of all, I want, I'd love to hear more about how you connect with this food scientist. And then tell us a little more about how you guys work together to create the, I guess, the different iterations or different, the very first iterations of the product. Sure, definitely. Uh, it's a good question because I don't know for all all the listeners out there that are, have done product development or are thinking about doing product development. Uh, I had no background in food or nutrition, even for that matter. Um, the only background I had, like I said, was I was a big backpacker and I kind of knew what was out. I was familiar with what was out there on the market. I was much more familiar with the market than I was developing a product. So I kind of, that was an area that I acknowledged very early on was not going to be something I was going to pour a lot of time into trying to, you know, polish and become an expert at. I just kind of acknowledged that nutrition was something I didn't, I knew nothing about. So, uh, yeah, I took, I I tried to find some, uh, contractor, and I knew I wanted a contractor versus an employee. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I scoured the Internet for uh, any kind of food scientist uh, slash chef to help help develop this meal. So uh, ultimately, I think it was um, it's called Upwork now, but at the time it was called Elance. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember when it was called that, Felix. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there was a, there was a food scientist and yeah, he helped me formulate the the product and then we did lots of iterations, and I took the product to different hiking festivals. Uh, really getting, trying to get some feedback, saying, "Oh, this has too much salt, or you know, this tastes too sweet, or you know, this is too crunchy, too dry, all that kind of stuff." And then uh, felt confident about a product. I guess that was about July 2014. Yeah, and then we're talking about soft launches of the product. I don't really know if the time I viewed it like a soft launch. It was to me, it was launching, but looking back. Uh, at the time, I, I truly just had no entrepreneurial experience. So uh, nowadays, you know, when, I, when I'm launching stuff, I'm like, I really have a, a lot more uh, knowledge in how to and how to do it and know that at that time, I really was doing very, I was not doing as much effort as I should have been in launching um, the product. But yeah, what, what specifically what I was doing was, uh, I guess it, it was a, it was a, it was PR outreach, essentially. Uh, I had some connections, oh, I don't know, very small connections with kind of medium kind of hiking celebrities, if you will, uh, from being, you know, from backpacking so much. And I kind of sent it to them for some feedback and uh, did a lot of cold outreach on my own. So, I, you know, you know, if there was a blog or anybody who was doing anything in the outdoor space, particularly the backpacking space, I was reaching out to uh, via cold email, you know, just saying, hey, we've got these, uh, I've got these green belly meals they're two bars they pack in a ton of your nutrition um you know if you have any interest in trying them giving us some feedback so at minimum they would you know say hey it's free food why not um so i would ship them some products and uh yeah they would get back to me and say hey it's you know too dry too whatever or they'd say hey it's great you know do you mind if i post it on my blog you know so that's that was really how and i had just set up a raw template on on shopify uh a very out, you know, kind of out of the box um, Shopify theme, 
And uh, yeah, I started generating some sales um, very quickly uh, by doing that method of, of sending out free product to um, influencers, you know. And uh, I think the, the biggest one at that time was actually Bicycling Magazine. So Bicycling Magazine picked up Green Belly and, uh, you know, did a, did a full on. We were actually on the front page of bicycling.com. Yeah, and I was like, this is, this is really cool. Um, so that, yeah, that was kind of the first stages of the launch back in uh, late 2014 after we had had the, had the product ready to go is, is really PR outreach and uh, really reaching out to a bunch of different bloggers and backpackers and that kind of, that kind of crowd. Yeah, definitely want to talk more about your experience with PR in a, in a bit. Uh, but you said something earlier that <clears throat> really caught my attention, which was that you knew a lot about the market, but you didn't know much about the product that you ultimately end up developing, you know, th- this food products. Uh, and, you know, the question comes to my head is that uh, why not try to find a product? Why not, why not try to find a product category that you also knew about like what made you uh, I guess not necessarily so sure but what made you be willing to take that risk and go try to build a product that you didn't know much about even though you did have a lot of experience uh, knowing the market because you are you know an ideal basically target customer yeah that's a uh, that's a good question and I think after spending you know uh, you know a couple years in this business um, that would have been something I yeah, I should have considered more honestly, but at the, at the time it was just really the idea, you know, like I was like really set on this idea and I felt like there was a void in the market. So it was, I think particularly like early on, it's all about the idea, all about the idea, not necessarily the execution, you know, and, and yeah, at the time I just thought this idea was just going to, you know, it, it could fill a void in the market. So I really was obsessed with creating, you know, that product versus something that I might have known more about or, you know, any anything like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and when you don't know about about the product or about how to develop a product like this, uh, how do you, you know, obviously you hired this contractor, this food scientist to help you out, but how did you make sure that you were able to contribute your your knowledge to develop this product? Like how much were you how much were you involved in it to give your your particular feedback, or did you kind of give the reins to to the food scientist? A little bit of the knowledge of the market was I was very familiar with. Uh, backpacking meals out there. So they're like, you know, uh, a lot of freeze dried meals. I don't know if you've ever heard like Mountain House or Backpackers mm-hmm. Pantry or some of those kind of guys that do, uh, you know, essentially like rice powder and dried meat and dried veggies and you throw hot water in there yeah. and seal it up. Um, and then there were also, you know, a, a million bars out there. So I was kind of familiar with a lot of the stuff that was out on the market uh, just from my own taste buds. So from there, that kind of gave me a little bit of confidence to know when we were getting. Uh, just even some very raw early stages, you know, products that uh, he was sending me samples and I was, you know, I, I could generally guide him in, in a, uh, you know, kind of like the 80-20 effect. I could kind of guide him 80% of the way and say, you know what, this is just way too X or way too Y. And then t- once we kind of had that 80% product, the final 20% was kind of, uh, let's get some other people's feedback, you know, not just Chris's taste buds. Mm. So you, when you took it to these festivals and you, you know, met with other, uh, backpackers or other outdoors people to get them to try the product, what was your approach? Like, how did you approach them? What kind of questions did you ask to make sure that you're getting the right feedback? Yeah, I threw on, I guess, first of all, yeah, I cut up a ton of little, you know, kind of like you would at the grocery store, just see like a bunch of toothpick kind of things, you know, chopped up little bars on a tray with toothpicks. But I actually threw on a a big lime green afro and uh, I just wanted to kind of 
uh, I, I guess, yeah, draw attention and catch some people's eyeballs. And so uh, I definitely stood out in the crowd walking around uh, the hiking festival with like a, a big lime green wig on. But then, yeah, I would just go up and say, hey, you know, you know, we're launching a new product uh, in the next few months. We would love to get some of your feedback. Do you want some free food? And yeah, you know, walking around giving away free food, it really isn't too hard to, you know, give that away. And then some people would totally, you know, just kind of like you walk anywhere in the grocery store and you get a free sample. It's just kind of like, all right, free food, I'll, I'll move on. Mm-hmm. But then certainly there was definitely a percentage of people that were really like wanted to give you their all, uh, you know, full attention about, you know, what they, what they thought about it, um, what they're currently using, what they currently don't like about their products. So I really didn't have a rigid system of, of uh, getting collecting feedback from people. Yeah, I was really just kind of, you know, hand out the samples and, and see what people thought and see if there were any consistencies on, on what they thought. Yeah, I think once you immerse yourself in the community around your, your customers, you just, you can't even help it, but absorb the feedback they're giving you. It doesn't have to be a super formal, you know, questionnaire or anything, just getting out there and listening to them will eventually kind of infiltrates your own psyche and gets you to understand their perspective a little bit more. Uh, the, the, I think one of the difficulties, though, is the, especially with a product like this where you know, it involves taste, it, you could get conflicting feedback, right? Like people might say it's too salty. Someone might say it's not salty enough. Like what do you do when you get this kind of conflict? Yeah, that's a, yeah and, that, and that definitely happened. Um, and we still get that to this day. Uh, you know, We get messages all the time saying, make it sweeter, make it saltier. Mm-hmm. Why is it, why isn't it so dry? Why is it so wet? All that kind of stuff. I guess, yeah, there's just gotta be, you just kind of got to stick with something, you know, like what, what feels right, what feels like a general common consensus, what feels right to, to my taste buds. Um, yeah. And then just kind of, just kind of run with it. And, you know, you're not going to be able to please everybody in the crowd. Um, so as long as, as long as you can please most people, you know, I, I feel like that was, that was pretty good. Yeah, maybe just pay attention to a lot of the, um, the, the the trends, the themes, and when it comes to kind of 50-50 split on things, then you might have to just go with your own intuition, uh, which you definitely totally. should not you know, discount. Uh, so it sounds like uh, when you were getting started for the first time, and you kind of alluded to this, uh, these soft launches, and, and looking back at that time, it didn't feel like soft launches. You're kind of just, you know, launching and iterating the product. Were there certain things that you learned about these soft launches that you made sure you definitely want to fix or do again or do better when you are going to launch, when you, I guess, officially launch the business or when you do any future launches? Did you learn anything from those early days that you make sure to, uh, I guess, do right? or do 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 again uh, with a with a future launch there have been several several I guess you'll call them launch phases and the first one like we talked like we just went over was the the kind of soft blogger outreach launch that was just kind of like, hey we've just got this like minimum viable product kind of wanting to see what the testing the waters that was kind of launch a launch B was the Kickstarter uh, and which was early 2015 and then launch C was, actually a few months after the Kickstarter hitting market and saying, all right, now we've got a new site, we've got new packaging, we've got a brand, uh, you know, we've got a new facility, we're ready to, you know, we've got some money, we're ready to push this thing properly. Um, And each one of those launches just had a truly different mentality for each of them. Uh, And yeah, we're launching uh, something new in about a week from now. So that's going to be 
the the approach to that product launches is, is is very different from the other ones as well. But I'd say the main thing was um, setting a, a date. So like we talked about that soft launch, it was very kind of like hey guys, hey, we've got this product, you know, would you give us some feedback? And there was no like final, like big unveiling. And I think that's something I, I wanted to do. If I would, if I were going to launch Greenbelly again, I would say like, we have a hard launch date, not just kind of like the sites up selling now, you know, maybe we'll get a, maybe we'll get a sale in a few weeks when we, when we send off these samples to somebody, you know, it was like, I would love to have, have pre-lined everything up. So like, send out all the samples at once to a ton of different influencers and then like have a landing page with an email opt-in and say, Hey guys, you know, we're launching this awesome new backpacking meal, you know, and on, on date X, Y, Z, uh, you know, sign up here to be the first ones to know about it. And like really kind of build up this hype and then have like a really hard launch launch date, you know, cause before it was very, it's very soft. Sales kind of sales kind of trickled in, and then we might get some bursts every now and then when a bigger blogger would post something. But yeah, that would be one thing definitely is build up the hype and then give it a, a, a hard date, you know, to launch. That would definitely be something. Mm, yeah. Is it, why, why do you think that that's? Um, <clears throat> I guess why why would you say that that would be a better approach to uh, you know launch all at once rather than this kind of slow trickle, which you know might last long. Not necessarily the hype might not last longer, but the you kind of kind of constantly feeding the the marketing engine, I guess, over a long period of time rather than you know concentrating it at one point with a, a you know an official date. Like why do why would you lean towards that way? Yeah, I guess uh, it, it would be kind of a little bit of uh, you kind of lining up your dominoes, putting all your resources, making sure you crossed your T's and dotted your I's uh, ahead of time. Because it was like as it was kind of the as you go thing was it was just kind of oh we'll, we'll we'll tweak this, we'll tweak that. But it's like you put a hard deadline. It's like you know what? Once we have a hard deadline, we can kind of and and at that point in time, like Facebook was doing a lot uh, a lot better on their. I, I don't know what they. Column, but their uh, their posting rates. You know, you're getting a lot more reach with Facebook at the time. So it was like we could have lined up our social media better, saying here's kind of our plan. Uh, you know, pre-launch as well as live, as well as you know the following week, as well as our email strategy. We could have really like kind of you know had some synergy with all of the different marketing channels with that hard launch date. Which, other than that, they were kind of all operating independently. You know, it was like. Okay, we'll post some stuff here, post some stuff there, send an email here, send an email there. It's like by having a hard launch date, it's kind of like you connect all of those funnels and you, you just put them like right to one hard point, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I've heard too about doing a hard launch like this all at once and push everything out all at once is that you start appearing everywhere. Even if it's a short period of time, once you start appearing everywhere, you look kind of bigger than you actually are, right? You look like, wow, everyone's mm. covering this. It must be, it kind of adds some, I guess, legitimacy to uh, a young and you know, new startup, new business. And that's one benefit, I think, too, that, that um, sometimes overlooked, like you're saying. Uh, I think, you know, when people are starting off for the first time, starting their business for the first time, they kind of just you know, learn as they go and place pieces here and there. So I don't think it's a problem with that, you know, especially when you just need to get going. But like you're saying, once you kind of have it figured out, once you have a business and you're doing future launches for new products, new product lines, I think it definitely makes sense to line all up at once. Um, But I think the issue then is that it sounds like a lot to manage, right? Because you're no longer just, you know, focusing on one blogger a week. You're focusing on, you know, 50 bloggers or whatever the number is. Uh, You're focusing on a lot of people, a lot 
lot of kind of uh, pieces you're juggling all at once. How would you manage that today? Like any tips on how you kind of corral all this together and and are able to manage uh, a large launch like this? Uh, I'm not really. Sh- I don't know if I'd have a like a a, a one one piece of advice. Uh, in general, it's come with uh, yeah a little bit of experience, just kind of knowing where to where to put your resources and where not to. Um, yeah, like uh, you know, the next product launch we're going to do is definitely it's going to be done in about uh, you know a fraction of the time as our previous um, kind of like those stages I was mentioning, those stage launches we've done in the past. And I think that just comes with a little bit of experience. You kind of know um, what has worked in the past and what has not worked and maybe where you might have wasted some resources in the past. Yeah. So like, I mean, for our next product launch, we would just be very hard with, um, you know, let's make sure our email list is looking clean. Um, Let's make sure we have a, a good email strategy. We, we, you know, send an email prior to launch, launch date, and then a follow-up email. So that would be one big thing. I mean, that right there, that getting that first sequence of emails would be huge. Um, that's not something we had before. It was a very, not only small email list, but it wasn't very, uh, it was, it was kind of a sloppy, um, as far as our organization of it. So yeah, um, I think the big thing would be a little bit of experience and just kind of knowing where where to allocate your resources and where you know knowing where might overall be a waste of time, you know. Mm. Yeah, that might not be a bad thing too when you are launching all at once. It kind of forces you to to choose your activities wisely because when you have a lot of time, when you give yourself a lot of time, you kind of just start uh, dibble like kind of dabbling in a lot of. Uh, you know distractions more than things that actually move the needle. Um, do you remember? Totally. Yeah, do you remember how much you invested at the beginning to get to the stage of you know actually having a product that you were happy with? Um, you know, even maybe even before the Kickstarter launch, like maybe at, by the time that you you know spent the the funds on on hiring someone to help you help you develop the product, and then you know coming up with the iteration that you were uh, happy or proud to to start selling. Do you remember how much it, it cost you? Initially? Yeah, I've been asked that before, and I, I know I've given out different numbers um, for this answer. And to be honest, Felix, I don't know the exact answer. I haven't ever gone back and actually seen those early numbers. But I would venture to say, food scientist, contracting the food scientist, uh, a few, you know, six months of my own salary, uh, getting getting a, the site, getting uh, all that kind of early stage packaging. Um, I would venture to say fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Yeah, that was, and I think uh, looking back, could have done that even uh, could have done that even, yeah, for less and lighter, yeah. definitely. Um, but yeah, I'd say roughly fifteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what kind of I guess challenges do you find with starting a business that? Uh, you know, essentially it has a perishable good, right? Because it's a food product. And I'm assuming this is going to last longer than other food products because of uh, the, the nature of the product itself. But, you know, it still eventually could, you know, will go bad. Do you, is there any, I guess, challenges that you encounter that you think might be specific to food products? Yeah, that's definitely been, when you're talking about early stages and selecting a product in the you know, to launch for your own new business. Uh, that's something I definitely had no appreciation for is the shelf life um, and, and potentially expiring inventory. Uh, so there's this constant push-pull that we we deal with with uh, managing inventory, right? So you want to make sure you can meet the demands of the customer. So if, you know, people order, you're not out of inventory, you know, that's not good and you're, you're just losing money then. 
But also on the flip side, you don't want to overproduce and have a bunch of inventory sitting there that could potentially expire and not be bought. Um, yeah, so that's that's really that's that's one of our one of our uh, definitely pain points is is dealing with inventory and ensuring that we have you know a, com- a comfortable level that's not over or underproduced. Um, yeah, and that just takes a lot of time on our end, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as as well as sourcing the ingredients and all that kind of stuff, we have ingredient inventory that also needs to be managed. Um, so I wouldn't say to you know an entrepreneur that's thinking about going into food to you know steer away from it because of that, but that's definitely something to consider because I know a lot of my entrepreneurial buddies. Um, well, first of all, they might have a, you know a digital product which there's you know no inventory at all, or they might have uh, you know a physical product um, and be on Shopify. But their inventory is, you know, non-perishable. It might be, uh, you know, anything, I don't know, non-food related. Mm. Um, but it's a very, it's a nice thing to not have to deal with. For sure. And I think you mentioned that once you did get the um, <clears throat> the site up, the, the the business took off pretty quickly. Were you able to keep up with that, that demand early on with, uh, you know, things going so fast? And especially like you're saying, one of the issues is with uh, inventory uh, management. No, in general, uh, I was not able to. So there was the, the first six months of sales were very inconsistent, but they were also I was living at home with my mom, so I was really I was really trying to bootstrap this, and I had a little bit of savings prior left over from my accounting, my corporate accounting job that I was using for this. But yeah, I was making everything by hand um, with my mom in my mom's uh, in my mom's kitchen. So uh, you know when we would get. Uh, a big PR outlet push it. Um, you know, we would cook night and day in in the kitchen trying to meet trying to meet demands, um, which didn't happen. It didn't honestly happen too too much. We did, you know, we did what we needed to do when we had to. But um, yeah, I think the big the big step for Greenbelly was was getting uh, getting a, a proper facility set up, um, which really helped take that off my plate and not have to deal with that from a time, you know, and as well as fulfillment, order fulfillment, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, those early days, that was definitely, that was definitely something that was very, very stressful was dealing with that, with that demand as well as, you know, you're your own labor um, and order fulfillment, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, it might be interesting too, to talk about this facility that you had set up because it's definitely, I think different than the typical, you know, physical good manufacturers that a lot of listeners, a lot of other guests have spoken about. So tell us a little bit more about this. Like what is the facility? Like what, how is it different than I guess a typical physical manufacturing uh, facility? Sure. Uh, and yeah, without knowing too much about other physical products and how they manufacture, but my understanding is, is they'll do <clears throat> big, big runs less frequently. So, you know, maybe they go into production once a year and then they have, you know, they sit on the inventory for a year. Um, and then, you know, when next season rolls around, if they have a new fashion or new kind of style, they'll go into production again for the new year. Uh, yeah, Greenbelly is obviously different. Like we just discussed was the, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that it is perishable. So yeah, we got a, um, a facility in, in Kentucky. Uh, they've been superb. Uh, yeah. And that took a lot of cold calling on my part, uh, and Googling lots of, that took a lot of time to try to find a good partner that I felt, uh, was working. But in general, I wanted to find somebody who, uh, was already in food production. Uh, again, the learning curve. I did not want to have to be responsible for getting understanding all the USDA regulations of getting mm-hmm. this f- facility set up. I didn't want to have to train employees to deal with food. That's just not an area that I was super familiar with. And 
So I wanted to get a facility that was already set up and making their own food and wouldn't mind some overhead being, you know, split between the two of us. So yeah, I, I spent a lot of time finding them. And then I, I found a good partner that had some extra space um, for storage. They also had extra time and availability in their facility to go into production and produce food. And they also had employees that they could allocate to put on this. So from there, uh, yeah, we developed uh, a contract and, you know, said, hey, let's, you know, we go into production about every week with them. Uh, yeah, and they, and they produce green bellies straight from the facility and uh, shipped from their facility. Oh, so you, you found like a, a different like food brand that, that wasn't in some kind of like uh, large scale facility. They were just producing their own products. And then you reached out to them to see they, if they had some extra, uh, I guess, bandwidth to take on your products. Is that how you approach this? Yeah, exactly. So my initial approach would be kind of like what you might think of is, well, there are a million bars out there. You know, why don't you go ahead and find another uh, you know, bar manufacturer to what's called co- the term co-packing and co-packing means co-manufacturing somebody, uh, you know, private, private label, your product. But that turned out to be, uh, there, I, I, no good solutions. Uh, I talked to some, some bar companies, it seemed like they might be a good fit. Uh, there's always something that would not work out with them. Uh, the big one was right off the bat was minimum order quantities, mm-hmm. which a lot of people, you know, a lot of people run into is uh, we were wanting to fulfill our Kickstarter orders, which I actually don't even remember how many meals we were actually actually doing off of that first Kickstarter. But uh, it was maybe 5,000 meals, 10,000 meals off that first run. Um but yeah, a lot of people to even talk to them uh, to do a, a bar run that, you know, they wanted uh, half a million. And it was just like, yeah, we, we just can't deal with that. Um, and then the second thing was is we have unique packaging. So we had a kind of a zip pouch and you have two bars within that package. So most uh, bar manufacturers, that's not what they do. They have single bar packages. They couldn't fulfill. Um, they couldn't package two bars in one package. So Kind of right there, I was I was really you know hitting a lot of walls and like how on earth are we going to get these made? And it kind of went back to why don't we find somebody who's already kind of producing food and can do this on a on a smaller scale level? Um, yeah, which is exactly you know the route the route that we we went and um, yeah, and it's been great. They're really um, it's a good good facility. We have a good relationship with them. Um, and they can also scale with us, uh, you know, do more volume as we need to as we grow. Um, so, yeah, it's worked out well. Yeah, I really like this approach because, uh, you know, most of the time people will look for vendors that are producing for a bunch of different brands. But I think this is a, a very logical approach, especially when you're just starting out to try to find another uh, food manufacturer, another you know vendor that uh, that is uh, you know, looking to partner up with somebody to help them kind of cover some of the extra bandwidth. Uh, so but one other thing I really like about your product is the packaging. It looks very professional. It looks very, um, you know, clean and the design is awesome and everything. Like, how did you, how did you get this made? Like, how did you get a design and where is it, where is it, how is the packaging actually created? The, the great age of, of, of the internet is, uh, mm-hmm. we, I initially started off with, I think, I'm, uh, the first like raw packaging I ever did was, from I think just Googling, uh, you know, graphic design, uh, like food packaging, you know, and finding a few different, uh, different listings that popped popped up on Google. And the 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 company that did it was just not very good, to be honest with you. They provided 
a few different uh, mock-ups and then kind of for some direction for me. But in general, the mock-ups were all very similar. So they didn't give me any big concept differentiators, you know, to say, oh, that looks cool. Let's go that direction. Or they really gave me a very narrow selection of, of for concepts to go for. And this is all looking back that I realized it. But at the time, I thought, oh, yeah, that looks okay. Let's just run with that. So what I did for the second round of packaging, which is what you're currently talking about, Felix, uh, is 99designs. Uh, are you familiar with them? Yeah, love them. Yeah, so they're awesome. Uh, I threw up, I, I did a, the thing about 99designs is you have to make it enticing for the graphic designers. And I, I don't know, for the listeners out there, just quickly, 99designs is kind of like, you post a project and uh, on this website and you say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a T-shirt design, you know, packaging, logo design, whatever. And then you have all the graphic designers on 99designs. So my understanding is it's almost anybody can be a graphic designer on 99designs. So you kind of have that, that sharing option of uh, the crowd, the crowd design, and uh, anybody can see your project and then decide whether or not they want to help design it based on your demands as well as your price point. So the designer that actually makes the final design for you gets the prize money. So we posted a project. I don't remember how much it was for. We put a decent price tag on it. It was a few thousand dollars for some quality packaging. And, and we also guaranteed that we would give the money. So also, you know, there's an option that you don't have to guarantee the money. So if you uh, post a project on 99designs, you don't get any good designs, you can just say, all right, no thanks, I'm out. And, you know, no money is awarded. Or you can lock it in saying, no matter what, we're going to pay somebody this money. Mm-hmm. So once you do that on 99designs, the quality and the number of designers that pitch in for your packaging uh, I, I think it you know, increases a huge amount. So yeah, we locked in a decent amount of money and um, yeah, got a lot of designers throwing up some great designs. And then also what was kind of fun at the time is uh, we kind of built in our newsletter following. So we said, hey, here are the top six packaging design concepts right now. You know, when we kind of created a little survey, uh, 99 Designs actually creates the survey for you. And then, um, yeah, I kind of said, what are y'all thinking? And then this packaging right now that we have overwhelmingly won. So that was enough to, you know, for, for us to kind of, excuse me, go ahead with it. Um, but yeah, 99 Designs was great. And so you actually had your your email list, your customers, your potential customers uh, vote on the design they like the most? Exactly. And this was also right, this packaging was being designed uh, you know, we raised almost $20,000 from that Kickstarter. So that money was going towards creating, you know, their green belly meals. So, uh, you know, we had a few months between raising the money and actually delivering the product. And in that, in those few months was, you know, line part of that was lining up the packaging. So I said, Hey guys, you gave us your money for your kicks for the Kickstarter here. We're going to design the packaging for you. So, you know, what do y'all want? Um, and that was also kind of just some feedback for, you know, what direction should we take the packaging for, you know, when we're actually live and selling on the site. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So you mentioned uh, earlier on that uh, the, the soft launches and, and even your approach today is to work with these influencers and you sent uh, free products to them. Uh, tell us a little about this, this approach. Like how did you reach out to these influencers? Like how did you present to them that this essentially free product for them to try out? Because I'm sure that especially the more popular ones, they get inundated with these kind of, uh, hey, try my product. I'll try my product out. How do you you know stand out, I guess, in, in that kind of environment? I'd say, yeah, a couple of things. One is 
uh, I hear other entrepreneurs talking about, you know, when they do PR outreach, they kind of create a, a template and then hand it over to their VA to kind of mass blast uh, different, you know, different influencers. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't seem to have much success. The, yeah, the approach I, I've done has been very, pretty personal. So, um, which I don't, I don't know if you mind me even mentioning Felix, but when I was talking to you about coming on the podcast, I was really, I, I tried to be specific to you. Um, and I also tried to make sure the, you know, the email wasn't too long when I, when I, when I was talking to you, you know, I wanted to just say, Hey Felix, I, you know, I truly am trying to talk to you. And I also want to make sure that you don't have too much to read for this, you know, so don't make it an overwhelmingly long email. You know, I, I just kind of just kind of jump in on that. I, I, that was a, a one of the best kind of outreach emails I've seen because one thing that you really that you did that I really liked and I think will work really well for anybody reaching out to PR is that you gave me a bunch of ideas for essentially titles for the podcast and gave me an idea for the structure that that might come out of the podcast and that really helps a lot because I was reading through it and I was like wow these are you know pretty enticing uh, titles I can imagine what uh, this podcast would be like and it makes my job a lot easier which makes it a lot easier for you know me to say yes you know come on the podcast and I think that's the same case with anybody that you reach out to whether it be bloggers or influencers yeah uh, yeah and it's interesting I guess we have on the call right now who I was actually pitching that's a perfect example but um yeah, so it's just that it's kind of keeping in mind what the what the PR outlet wants. So kind of understanding them a little bit more than just, uh, hey, how can this how can this PR outlet get my product listed? It was more like, what is this what is this outlet writing about? Um, so if they're an ultralight backpacking blog, you know, I might say, hey, you know, we're an ultralight meal. Uh, you know, I've got an Appalachian Trail background. You know, kind of kind of make it a little more sophisticated to them. So so take a step back. Excuse me. Uh, I personally pitch everybody. Um, I make sure my signature says founder. Uh, I think that that says a lot more than, you know, a, a team member, right? It shows that the mm-hmm. founder's actually reaching out. It's from my personal email. Uh, I address everybody very, very specifically. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely use the custom name. I won't just say, hey there. Uh, and I'll definitely try to say something a little bit unique about them. Like I, I enjoy XYZ about you know, whatever, you know, whatever they're writing about. And then I'll really try to make sure my pitch is very specific to what they're writing about. So it's almost like if you apply for a job, you want your resume to nail the qualifications and requirements for that job posting, as opposed to just say, Hey, I'm, I'm good at everything. And then it's kind of like, well, that's not really very applicable to that job. So it's a similar thing when you reach out to, to PR, at least I've noticed is, um, you know, when you reach out to somebody, make it very specific to them, make sure your pitch is not too long. Um, I mean, I think ideally like four sentences, uh, and it talk about them, you know, what can you do for them? What do you have for them? So whether that's, you're wanting to do a guest post or why you wanting to give, get, give your product to them, say why, you know, why is your product really beneficial for them and their audience? Mm, awesome. Uh, so when you do reach out to these uh, PR outlets, you're doing, you're doing it one by one, which obviously would take a lot of time, not just to produce the emails, but to do your research into these emails. Uh, are there any ways to kind of stack the odds in your favor to make sure that they, uh, maybe not so much with the PR and bloggers, but the, the influencers, the people that are posting on Instagram or posting on social media, to get them to you know share the product, even though you're going to send it to them for free, any ways to um, increase the odds of them actually trying the product and then and then uh, you know sharing with their followers? 
Sure. That's a, uh, something I would like to get better at. That's not something I've, I've been the best at. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a little bit of a sidestep, but that's something is uh, affiliate programs would be to, you know, say, hey, you know, if you if you share with our custom link and refer any sales, we'll give you 10 or 15% of all sales referred. I think that's one approach that um, we could do. That's not something we've done. The We've done a little bit of it and has not been successful. Uh, that's something I would like to polish more is really trying to line up kind of uh, an army or, uh, you know, kind of green belly disciples, if you will. And, uh, yeah, really incentivize them to, uh, you know, push it, uh, you know, somewhat systematically. So if that's on their social media or whatever their, you know, main, main outreach method is, if that's social media or email or in person at events or wearing a, a shirt at a race or whatever that might be. But that's something we honestly have not been too good at is, is really once we, once we reach out to them, say, Hey, will you post this or will you not post this? When will you post this? It's kind of been a, a very hands-off process, which, Hey, maybe that has worked to our benefit. It's, you know, it's no pressure kind of, if you want to try this, great. Uh, if you want to write about it, great. If not, no worries. Um, you know, maybe that actually has been a good approach, but in general, that's something I want to work at is, is getting, uh, you know, a, a more consistent system for, for some of those influencers to being, kind of on, on, on the green belly team, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, so one, one thing you mentioned to me, I think in the email as well was about the, uh, struggles of being a solopreneur. Uh, I've spoken to the, spoken to a few entrepreneurs about this, about, you know, the, basically the lonely journey, right? Because most of your friends, at least initially aren't going to be entrepreneurs are not going to be not necessarily understand what you're trying to do. They are following a specific track, uh, you know, g- g- basically working a, a day job and staying on that. And then this is, you're doing something completely different. That's very, that challenges a lot of the ways that people think about earning an income, earning a living. Uh, tell us about this. Like, what, did you feel this early on? Like, did you feel like, man, this is a lonely journey, or did you feel like it was not that bad? Like, what was your experience like early on being a solopreneur? Yeah, uh, like I mentioned, when I first started this, I was living with my parents, man. So, I mean, it was looking back, that was just. It was not fun times, man. Yeah, it was like truly lonely. And there's not really, you know, from the emotional side of things, it's lonely. But also from the business side of things, uh, I need feedback. Um, I, you know, if I'm thinking about doing something, I want to, I want to know, hey, is this a bad idea? Hey, is this where, you know, I need to be allocating my resources at this point? Uh, You know, hey, this worked in the past. Should we be doing more of this? Or this didn't work in the past. Should we try to fine tune that? So all that kind of stuff is difficult. I think going solo, um, and I think ways to combat that has been one, just kind of pigheaded discipline, just kind of like sticking sticking to it and kind of um, staying the course uh, and gain, gaining more experience while staying the course. That's definitely helped. Um, the other thing is, uh, as time has gone on which we mentioned earlier on the call, Felix was uh, the Dynamite Circle. That That's one entrepreneurial community specifically that um, I've tapped into. And I had a good buddy from college who was already in there and he was saying, you know, hey, this, this community has really been helpful. So I joined that and I <clears throat> I went to their conference last year. And um, yeah, that, that plugged me into a lot of people um, kind of also doing the traveling working lifestyle. So 
that community specifically has been helpful. Um, and then also, yeah, I guess traveling and being in kind of uh, little hub cities internationally. So it was Medellin, Colombia was one. Um, and Chiang Mai, Thailand now. Uh, Austin, Texas was another one that I was there for a little while. But kind of being in those communities uh, and, and tapping into that online community has, has helped me meet in person a lot more entrepreneurs, which has really helped kind of fuel the, uh, the ideas and, uh, you know, kind of feedback on the business. And I think a lot of those, a lot of those people are solopreneurs. So, you know, we, you know, kind of just talk, it's kind of like socializing, you know, you might have a, a beer and talk football. Um, we kind of have a beer and talk business, you know, mm -hmm. it sounds weird, but a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs are just kind of, they love business. So it's really helped kind of tapping into some of those communities and almost developing somewhat of a social circle um, of entrepreneurs. And, you know, we just talk about, you know, what, what are you doing with your business? And it's not necessarily a real formal thing like, hey, let's, you know, get down and talk about this. It's really casual, but that has definitely helped is having some kind of entrepreneurial friends. And then the other thing is a little more structured is the actual mastermind. Uh, I just joined a mastermind. I've kind of dabbled with some in the past um, that have been uh, not successful, but this one specifically I'm in has been um, pretty successful. So we have a weekly call and we put somebody in the hot seat every week, which is uh, they're an hour long call. And the first 15 minutes is generally kind of what have you been working on the past week. And then the last 45 or 30 to 45 minutes is one person specifically saying, hey, guys, I'm working on this problem. Um, you know, uh, let's get some feedback on it. And then, you know, the other three on the call uh, really dig into it deep and try to help solve that problem. So, yeah, I think those kind of things kind of help being the, being the, the solo guy um, and not having a co-founder or, uh, you know, a real a real team at the at the top pushing pushing the business hard mm -hmm. do you do you find that a, a community or a mastermind is this something that makes sense at every stage like if you are you have no idea what kind of business you want to start yet like now obviously you don't have a business yet don't have a store up yet is it too early to join a community or a mastermind like this or do you think that there's a place for it no matter what stage you're in yeah and i guess this community specifically, I was talking about. You definitely have to have revenue. They do have. Um, I, I don't remember. I don't know what all their guidelines are, but they do have some filtration process. So, if you're totally idea phase, that one would not be the best for you. But yeah, and I, that, I think that's a that's a good point. Is finding a finding a community or at least a group of people that are in a similar stage as you is uh, really helpful. So, yeah, I would say at any stage, try to find somebody because. Um, yeah, right now, uh, I, I would prefer not to be in a mastermind with somebody who's in the product development phase, um, as well as somebody who's making, you know, uh, you know, seven figures a month is, is not going to be a want to want to be on a call with me. So yeah, I guess that's it trying to find, you know, somebody who's in a relevant stage of, mm -hmm. of business, but by all means, I would think it's extremely beneficial to have always at least some, some support group that's not just, you know, your buddies from, uh, you know, corporate America, you really try to have somebody who's on a limb trying to push the limits, um, doing, a, doing their own thing. Do you, um, I think it's another kind of concern that, uh, some people might have about joining these masterminds is about how transparent you are expected to be with your, with your business. You know, the masterminds I'm a part of, we'll talk about numbers, about revenue, about expenses. We'll talk about all that kind of stuff. Do you like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, or is the, have you ever had like legitimate fears about sharing much about your business? Like what kind of, I guess, um, advice do you have for people that might be uh, fearful of being too transparent with their business? 
Uh, yeah, and I guess I mean similar with you and your your calls. It sounds like y'all y'all are pretty transparent. Um, I know this one specifically. We're in. It hasn't been going on that long. Maybe a couple months, but we're pretty transparent. Um, I think you know the more transparent you are, the more benefit everybody can provide, and vice versa. You can provide them as it's hard to you know dig into a problem if you're not really knowing the how severe it is, um, or vice versa. If some you know somebody's doing great, you know you want to know some numbers. Um, so I think I would always vote for being as transparent as possible, um, and I think maybe a little bit of that is, is trust. You know, making sure that people in your in your in your group aren't somebody that's going to be out there to to get you. But I mean, I I think the chances of that are are, are pretty slim. So. Yeah, I mean, mine specifically, we're very transparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier, about traveling and starting and running a business. Uh, you know, we said earlier that you started this out of Georgia. You have your facility in Kentucky. I think earlier you said you're in Asia right now. Uh, tell us about this. Like, What are some of the pros and, I guess, cons with uh, starting a remote business like this? Sure. The first thing, uh, I wanted to start a remote business because I wanted to travel. That was kind of one of the big incentives behind Greenville is I wanted to, I wanted to travel, uh, and I needed a, you know, a, a cash cow to, to, to pay for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a blast kind of working, working and traveling. Um, I would say when I first started, I was really excited about going to different places, um, traveling a lot. I quickly found that that was, uh, a productivity crusher, uh, mm-hmm. So like I first started off, you know, I went down to Colombia and then Ecuador and Peru and I was moving around a lot, staying a month or two at a time, which was really draining. Um, I quickly realized that that was just not a yeah best for productivity. It was just constantly, um, you know, you got to get in your groove. You, you know, when you get somewhere new, you might not have any friends. And then it's like, OK, well, you got to try to find reach out for some friends. Then that takes time. You've got to find, uh, you know, your gym. You've got to find your coffee shops to work at. You've got to find the, your place that you want to live, you make sure you have a good apartment that's near, you know, central town. Then you've got to find your logistics to get to the next place. It was just very time draining. So, uh, I've actually been in Chiang Mai, Thailand for almost a year now. I think, um, I, I found a year is pretty comfortable. So I'll, I think the next place I'll, I'll go will probably be for a year as well. But, um, yeah, the big, the big trade-off is definitely, the, the time drains, you know, it's constantly trying to get reestablished in a new environment it takes time. Um, but the big, you know, the big advantage is if you like to, if you like to travel, yeah, it's a blast, you know? Um, and you can, yeah, Colombia was great. There was a huge entrepreneurial community in Medellin and, um, it was fun tapping into that. There's a huge entrepreneurial community in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Um, and it's extremely affordable. So, I mean, my apartment right now is very nice. It's extremely affordable. Um, yeah. And life here in general is very affordable, fast internet, you know, um, it's really, it's, there are a lot of cities across the globe that have great, great setups to kind of work on your, work on your business. The big other trade-off though, is, um, if you're doing stuff overseas with any kind of clients, um, you know, we do a, a lot of business partnerships and that is very taxing to get on the phone late at night. A lot of times with them, um, that that's, that's a big drawback is being off with the time zones when you're over in Asia, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so for a business like this, that that is remote and you have your team spread out everywhere, are there specific tools or apps that you heavily rely on to to run to keep the business running at, you know, all hours? 
I don't know if there's anything specifically. We do uh, Skype. Uh, I've got a, a VA in the Philippines. Um, our facility uh, production and fulfillment is uh, heavily email. Yeah, other than that, and then, yeah, email. Email is big. We, uh, I know Slack is something a lot of people dabble with. I've not dabbled too much with Slack. I've found I'm just like, why am I on this messaging service? Um, I don't. I don't know if it's because we don't, I don't have as big of a team that's constantly working together. Uh, maybe it is the fact that we're on different time zones that we're not, you know, all online at the same time. But yeah, in general, email has been fine for us. Mm-hmm. And what about apps like you know Shopify apps or any other kind of tools just in general that you use? Yeah, uh, a big one has been recurring uh, recurring revenue. So we have a subscription option on for Greenbelly. Uh, you can get Greenbelly every 14 up to 60 days schedule, I believe. And that is, I think the company is called Recharge. I think there are two companies out there doing the subscription uh, application. But Recharge, uh, recurring revenue, I think is what it would be called. But that's mm-hmm. been great. Um, yeah, we have a uh, substantial chunk of revenue is subscription-based, which is really nice. Uh, it does require a decent amount more of customer service. Um, but uh, GoShipo is who we use for um, our shipping labels. Uh, we use Shopify's app product reviews for product reviews. Um, yeah, that's, we have an automated email that sends out to all customers, um, about a week after they purchase, you know, talking, saying, introducing myself to them as the founder. Um, and you know, if you want to say submit a product review, we'd welcome it. So Shopify's app product reviews has been good for that. That's a free one. Uh, abandonment protector. That's another one. Abandonment protector, which does shopping cart recovery. Um, you know, so somebody comes to our checkout and, you know, gets distracted or decides they don't want to buy whatever. Um, there's an automated email that sends out to them with uh, a discount code um, saying, you know, it looks like you abandoned your cart if you want to come back. Um, those are definitely probably the, the biggest ones. Um, and then, you know, our, our email email marketing services, we're actually in the process of switching from MailChimp to Constant Contact. So I can't attest too much to Constant Contact how if it's going to be good or not, but um, that's another those applications. Oh, and uh, AppSumo, AppSumo is one we use. Uh, they, you know, they do our. We have a pop up that integrates with our email marketing service. So we we've created a lot of content um, and backpacking guides, that sort of thing. And AppSumo has been uh, a pop up that we use to kind of uh, you know capture email. So it'll say, if you sign up today, we'll give you all of our all of our best backpacking guides, and then we'll send an automated email to them with AppSumo. Um, those are definitely, yeah, if, uh, if there's some other apps, I'm sure we have other apps, but if we do, we don't use them as much. Those are the main ones that we use. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So uh, what's next? What's next for Greenbelly? What do you guys have planned for the next, uh, you know, next year? Ah, man. Um, currently launching something at the moment. Uh, we're basically going to do like a, we're calling it a bundle box and it's going to be, uh, um, not quite a subscription box. It's going to be essentially like a pre-sale subscription box where we partner with other businesses, um, put some cool backpacking products into a box and discount it for 25% off retail value. Um, that's something we're currently working on. Um, I'm excited about that because it's, it's somewhat of a sidestep for Greenbelly. It's like we're going to be almost reselling other companies' products. Um, but I think the potential there is very big. Uh, and then as far as the Greenbelly point of view, we can have put Greenbelly in the hands of lots of different customers, which so I'm excited about that, but we haven't launched it. So I don't know if it's going to, if it's, it could totally flop for all I know, um, in which case we wouldn't put too many resources into it. 
Um, and the other stuff is, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about doing another product. Um, so currently, you know, we're doing meals and food. Definitely been thinking about a drink. Yeah, uh, I think polishing a lot of our existing marketing channels would be something uh, I would I would like to do. So not only launching new products like the drink and the box, but then also trying to get more more consistent revenue and more um, passive passive revenue, if you will. You know, getting some better email funnels, getting some Facebook funnels. Um, that kind of thing. And I definitely have retail in my mind on the horizon. We've done big time e-commerce with Shopify uh, as, as our business models online. And it's because the margins are so great. Um, but the uh, the retail market for, for food and backpacking products in particular, I, I think is huge. Um, so I, I can't turn away from that, even if the margins are less. So retail is definitely something on the horizon. So <laughs> I don't know. We've got a got a lot of stuff I want to be working on, man. Um, yeah, sounds like yeah. a busy year. Yeah, cool. So you know, thanks so much, Chris. So again, greenbelly.co, G-R-E-E-N-B-E-L-L-Y.co is the website. Anywhere else you recommend the uh, listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you're up to? I, I guess social media, obvious social media. We're on Facebook, of course. Um, but yeah, if you also subscribe to our email list, we've got a little... The pop-up will give you some cool backpacking guides. Uh, yeah, we've got some really cool backpacking guides. But um, yeah, other than that, keep on our website. Feel free to reach out to me. It's chris at greenbellybar.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at greenbellybar.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. All right, Felix. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.